Well, good morning, Kettlebrook Kewaskum. We are in the uh, final stretch here. Next week is Resurrection Sunday, a.k.a. Easter. And, uh, and today is uh, typically Palm Sunday, the day that we celebrate Jesus kind of riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And as Jesus prepares uh, for his crucifixion and uh, impending death, we are preparing ourselves for Easter as well by going through these chapters in the Gospel of John where Jesus is giving his kind of last discourse, his closing remarks to his disciples, preparing them for his impending death. And it's been full of some great stuff, hasn't it? I mean, he begins by promising the Holy Spirit to every single person who would ever believe in him. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I am going, I myself am going to come to you and be inside of you. Isn't that amazing? And he says, he said that I've appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that will last. And without me, you can do nothing. If we want to see any kind of kingdom impact in our world, we need to remain in or abide in Jesus Christ in order to see that happen. But it's at this point in uh, John chapter 15 where the conversation kind of takes a turn for the dark. If you're following along with me, you can turn to page 764 in your Bibles. And, uh, it, and it's sandwiched between Jesus, you know, talking about appointing people to go and bear fruit and then telling them that they must testify about who he is, about Jesus Christ, that he begins to talk about the fact that there will be opposition. There will be resistance to their message and there will even be persecution. Let's begin in verse 18 of chapter 15. We're going to read again the words uh, that Robert just, just read for us. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I have spoken to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also, if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. All right, as well as we'll just stop right there. As we read these passages about Jesus talking about persecution, they seem like foreign to us. Like, you know, they don't belong to our context. They don't, you know... We, this isn't a part of our daily experience of seeing this kind of really dramatic, overt persecution. But what we're experiencing in this in this country today is is really an exception to the norm of what's true for Christianity all throughout the centuries, all throughout two thousand years of the movement of Jesus Christ, and what is currently happening all over the world. Just last week, I had the opportunity to go to a conference at an undisclosed location. They really don't even want me telling you where it was. And we had to go through all sorts of security hoops to even get into this, uh, into this conference. They had to clear us, make sure that we were legit, because we were going to be briefed on what God was doing in a very restrictive Muslim part of the world. 
And we heard from believers who come from that part of the world and what God is doing. is just amazing. But one man I'll never forget, he talked about the fact about how his pastor in the capital city was assassinated one Thursday afternoon when he was leaving his office. It seemed as though this guy had become way, way too dangerous. He had started a prayer movement in his, uh, in his, in his city there that had grown and grown and grown until it became a church of a thousand people, 80% of which were from Muslim backgrounds. So they're Muslim background believers. And so the local uh, media took it upon themselves to take to the airways and say, this guy is way, way too dangerous. Citizens, you know, take matters into your own hands. And so he was assassinated. They snuffed him out. Now, we don't live in a world like that here in America. I mean, I'm not going to get, you know, assassination attempts on my life because I helped start Kettlebrook Church or multiple sites or anything like that. Whoops, sorry, Dave. <laughs> uh, I might get an assassination attempt for that. You know, <laughs> you know Dan's not going to get any, any death threats on him for preaching the gospel or anything like that, you know. Uh, and so this, this seems foreign. But what Jesus is saying here and what Jesus is saying in these verses to us is that if we are going to be on mission with Jesus, if we're going to step up and say we want to be a part of the solution to the situation that the world is in, there inevitably is going to be opposition. There inevitably is going to be resistance. There inevitably is going to even be persecution. And as followers of Jesus Christ, if we are going to go out and testify about Jesus, we need to be ready for this certainty. He starts off in verse 18. He says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Now when Jesus says, If the world hates you, he's not saying, Well, if by chance the world hates you, for some reason or another. He's not saying it like that. Like as if, if you have a flat tire on the way home, you know, that's, it's not that kind of if. This is a conditional clause. He is saying, if this is true, then this will be true. If the world hates me, the world hates you. If the world persecutes you, it will persecute. If the world persecuted me, it will persecute you. And then he even says it as a, as a present tense at the end of verse 19. He says, that is why the world hates you. Present tense, certainty, inevitability. As the Cajun chef used to say, mighty fine guarantee. It's going to happen. The world will hate you. And which brings up the question, uh, what, what does Jesus exactly mean when he uses this word, the world? The world is going to hate you. Well, who is the world? Because there are elements of our world that didn't hate Jesus. They loved Jesus. They thought he was cool. If you were down on luck, on your luck, if you had made disastrous decisions with your life, if you were spiritually disoriented and knew that you had messed your life up, Jesus had like unlimited amounts of patience for you. And those people flocked to Jesus. So there were elements of our world that actually loved Jesus. But there was another element that really hated Jesus, that despised Jesus. Who was that? Those are the religious leaders. Those are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the chief priests who just in a few hours are going to hold 
mock trial and basically condemned Jesus to death. They hated Jesus. So when Jesus uses this word, the world, he also is including the religious realm, the religious world as well. And I think this is very, very important for us to notice because when you look at the history of Christianity throughout the centuries and even what we experience today, oftentimes when followers of Jesus are experiencing opposition, experiencing persecution, it comes from the religious world. It comes from right inside the church. It's not coming from people who are coming out of bootleggers on Friday nights or something like that. or you know, It's, it's people from, coming from people, from well-meaning people who are sitting in church on a Sunday morning. And this has been the way it has been throughout history. One of the books that was really, really popular in the 16th century was a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. For a long time, this was like second to the Bible on people's shelves that was read repetitively. And, and it, was, it chronicles all sorts of stories of followers of Jesus, Protestant followers of Jesus, who suffer persecution and even are martyred, are killed for their faith. And you know who, they killed, who killed them? The church. The church. This is a guy named John Huss. And Jan Huss. I suppose. And Jan Hus was one of a very early reformer. He saw the abuses and the immorality in the clergy at the time. And as a priest himself, as a Czech priest, he spoke out against the licentiousness and the immorality he saw in the priesthood. And so they burned him at the stake. Uh, there is another guy named William Tyndale. This guy was a real rabble rouser. Let me tell you about William Tyndale. You know what he did? He translated the Bible into English. And so they killed him by strangulation. Okay? And then they burned him at the stake, just for good measure, to make sure he was good at death. Good at death. And, and in, in the 17th century, there's this group, movement of people called the Anabaptists. And what the Anabaptists said is they said, you know, we've been reading Scripture and we've been reading the book of Acts, and it seems to us that people should actually make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as adults and then be baptized after they've made a profession of faith in the Christ. And what we see in the, in the church is that we're just baptizing infants, but we think people should probably be, be baptized after they place their faith in Jesus. So we're going to start doing that. And the leaders of the church said, okay, you want to start doing that? We'll baptize you. We're going to take you out in the middle of a lake, tie a rock to your leg, and throw you overboard. And then you'll be baptized. And a lot of people had that happen to them. And when I am counseling with people who are facing moderate levels of persecution in their lives for choices that they have made to follow Jesus. I'll tell you what, many times it comes from well-meaning people who are sitting in pews on Sunday morning. That's just the way it is. We had a family in a church who was sending their daughter to Chad, Africa. Okay? And you will not believe the amount of abuse they got from their family. Because they were sending their daughter to Chad, Africa, a dangerous place. You know? Do you know what the, uh, the, the, the number one reason why Christian children do not go to the mission field? Christian parents. That's the number one reason. And when, when you make this second level decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ and say, I want to be a part of the solution. I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of, of proclaiming Jesus. Remember, Jesus says, I've appointed you to go and bear fruit. 
And then he talks about persecution. Then he says, okay, you must go and testify about me. Sandwiched between go and bear fruit, testify about me, is this whole conversation about persecution. It's going to happen. It's just absolutely inevitable. So what I want to do is just kind of very quickly kind of go through some underlying reasons why followers of Jesus Christ are persecuted. As, as we go through certain levels of, of opposition or even kind of teasing or mocking or anything like that, there are oftentimes there are very specific reasons why this has happened. Do you, do you have my PowerPoint at all? Let's see if we can get that up. It's okay. The first reason why followers of Jesus can be uh, persecuted is when existing power structures are threatened. When existing power structures are threatened. In every culture, in every society, there are existing power structures. These might be religious power structures. They might be economic power structures. They might be political power structures. But when these power structures are threatened and their power base begins to erode underneath them, watch out because power structures will fight back and bite back against you. In the book of Acts, chapter 19, there's a story about Paul and he's in the city of Ephesians. And he's preaching Jesus Christ, and there's this group of silversmiths who make shrines to the goddess Artemis. And they begin to see their livelihood being eaten away because more and more people are following Jesus Christ, and they're not worshiping Artemis of the Ephesians. And so what do they do? They cause a riot. And they bring Paul and his companions up on charges. They bring him before the magistrates, and they say, this can't be. And whenever certain power structures are threatened, that's when they fight back. That's why in many places of the, of the Muslim world, the religious structures of the day in the Muslim world are threatened. That's why the, the gal uh, in the video who is blogging is threatened. Her very life is threatened because she's talking about Jesus Christ. And they're threatened by that. I just talked this week to one of the university students from our, uh, from our church, from our congregation. And she called me for advice because on her university campus, she's at UW school, she is being inundated with just this propaganda to embrace and celebrate all deviant forms of sexual expression. And they're all legitimate and they should all be celebrated. And the minute that in class she begins to stand up and say, well, you know what, not everybody has that perspective. She is roundly shouted down and just blasted by her classmates and the institution. In fact, the other day, the professor got up in front of everybody and explained to the whole class how gender is actually on a sliding scale. And it moves back and forth, depending on how you're feeling that day or depending on what's going on in your life. And it's malleable, and it changes. And if you question that, that academic thought structure, power structure, you will be persecuted against. Okay. So when, when existing power structures are threatened, when the gospel presses out into new territory, when there's the first expression of the church, this is anywhere where, where the, the gospel is pressing out and there are these first fruits, these first followers of Jesus, whether you're the first one in, in a culture, in a nation, in a family, in a workplace, you unfortunately are just going to have to take it on the chin. This is the nature of being a first fruit. I remember this gal named Layla, who was one of the first followers in her city in Turkmenistan that I got a chance to meet. 
and um, and she was just 12 years old. And on the when she was at her house church in Turkmenistan, the authorities came and rounded everybody up, took them over to the police station. And on the way over to the police to the police station, all the adults in the paddy wagon conspired against Layla and said, "We'll point her out as the ringleader." Isn't that brave of all those adults to do? So to get off the hook, they point the finger at old young Layla. And at 12 years old, she just said, all right, I guess this is what it's like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Bring it on. It can't get too hot for me. And today she's a house church movement leader because she, as a first fruit, realized it's going to be hot. There's going to be persecution. I had breakfast last week with a gal from our church, and she was the first person in her family of nine children to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you know how difficult it was for her to be the first one out of nine siblings to go to that cult church that meets in a gymnasium? What? You meet in a high school theater? What? You know? And, and she really got abused for that. But I, she did what I told her to do. I said, this is, this is what you do. Don't say anything. Just pray behind their back. Pray behind their back like there's no, no tomorrow. And she began to pray for them. And that's exactly what happened. A few divorces later, a few disastrous decisions later, and a couple other, follower, a couple other siblings of hers have begun to follow Jesus Christ. But at the beginning... It was really tough. And whenever the gospel presses out in a new territory, whether it's a family, whether it's a workplace, whatever, there's going to be opposition. And then the last one that's up there. When followers of Jesus decide to be on mission with him. When followers of Jesus decide to be on mission with Jesus, then there's persecution. If you don't decide to be on on mission with Jesus, you don't have anything to worry about. There's not going to be any persecution. So you can just chill. Don't worry about it. But when you... Decide to take seriously Jesus' word. I have appointed you to go and bear fruit. And then he talks about persecution. And then after that he says, you also must testify about me. And when you decide, I'm going to be that one of those people who go and bear fruit. I'm going to be one of those people who testify about Jesus. Then there's going to be persecution. If you, just, if you decide not to do that, you don't need to worry about anything. You don't need to worry about anything. But if you decide to be that person who stands up and says, I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. And look out. So this season of Lent, as we meditate on the words of Jesus Christ in these chapters in John, I just want us to kind of pause and take seriously what Jesus is saying right here, these thoughts about persecution. It's not something that we think about often. It's not something that we experience often. You know, we live in a culture that is, Christianity is the dominant religion, right? It still is, last I checked. I mean, many of you maybe had to pass two or three churches just to get here today. All right? So we're not going to have death threats made against us. But, 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 if you decide to be on mission with Jesus... There will be, inevitably, some, 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 some kind of opposition. It may come from your family. It may come from friends. It it may come from well-intentioned people in the church. I have a friend who was a a big-time broker in a a, um, financial institution in Milwaukee. 
And when he decided to quit his job to go work in a church, oh my goodness, look out. He took it on the chin. They thought he was nuts because he was walking away from all of that. When you decide to be on mission with Jesus, that will inevitably happen. So I'm going to pray. We're going to put some, um, we're going to put some, some questions just to think through and ruminate upon, meditate upon for about two minutes. And after that, we're going to take communion together. And this is how we're going to do it. If you are a follower of Jesus, we don't care what church you come from. We don't care if you're not a member of Kettlebrook. You may come from another church. We're just glad that you're here. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So as the, as the ushers distribute the bread and the cup, feel free to take it if you're a follower of Jesus. And then Dan's going to come up and we're all going to take it together. So let me just pray. Jesus, um, these are not our favorite verses, if we're honest. These, um, these are ones we would like to avoid if we could. But you have guaranteed us that they are unavoidable. In fact, you said them specifically so we could anticipate opposition and even persecution if we should decide to follow you and be a part of the solution. Jesus, before you even began talking about this whole subject of persecution, you began by saying, I have appointed you to go and bear fruit. And I pray for anybody here, I pray for anyone here who wants to stand up and say, I want to be a part of the solution. I want to go and bear fruit for Jesus. I pray for them because inevitably they are going to face some sort of resistance, some sort of opposition. And I pray that you'd come alongside of them and remind them of your sure promises in Scripture that you will never leave them nor forsake them. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.